Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, when we survey the wondrous cross, we see your amazing love. And we see our king. You are our king. But you see you, we see you hanging there, suffering in our place. Father, we ask that tonight, on Good Friday, as we think in a new way, in a fresh way, at what you have done for us on the cross, that your spirit would have his freedom in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight in our service, our plan is to look at the seven words of Christ on the cross. If you take the four different Gospels and take each of their accounts of Jesus' death on the cross, you'll find that he spoke seven times. And we're going to have, our plan is to have seven short meditations, on each, one on each of those words, and then uh, and just let God's Spirit refresh us, challenge us, teach us. And, and then each, in between each time, we'll look up to him in song and worship him. The first word he spoke is found in, in uh, Luke chapter 23, um, beginning at verse 32. I'll read, and it is the word of forgiveness, the word of forgiveness. In verse 32, it starts, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, in verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Here, it's interesting that we see in this passage the response of the people to Christ. Several words stand out to me. Of course, there in verse 33 is the word crucified. And we'll hear in a little more detail in a few moments. But here, there's this awful death that Jesus is is dying and he's being uh, executed as a criminal in the most painful way that the Roman Empire could devise. And so they're crucifying him. And then in verse 34, some of them are casting lots. That strikes out to me. And they cast lots to divide his garments. They're, they're just un, uninterested, in, indifferent towards this one who's suffering on the cross. They're just they're gambling for his clothes, not worried about how he feels, not worried about his, his, his agony, just casting lots for his, for his clothes. And then uh, in verse 35, I see the word scoffed. The ruler scoffed at him. And then in verse 36, it says that some of the soldiers, they mocked him. And so here is Jesus crucified, being ignored, scoffed at, and mocked. And yet his words from the cross are, Father, forgive them. I think this, this, um, this love of his amazes me, and I think it ought to amaze us all. He is a forgiving God, is a forgiving God, and his forgiveness is complete. 
If you've been worshiping with us over the last several weeks, you'll know that we've been looking uh, intently at at the cross and what Jesus has done. And we've I've emphasized to some extent the justice of God. Because without understanding that, we can't really understand the cross. And yet, we don't want to emphasize it so much that we forget the mercy and the love of God. Because in God, it all goes together. In Psalm 103, beginning at verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God is a forgiving God. And his forgiveness is complete. So complete that our sin in us never touched. Once forgiven, our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. He's forgiven us completely. And then I think about the fact that we have a greater responsibility than just to be in awe. Or to be amazed at God's love, which we ought to be. It ought to touch our hearts that as he hung in that pain and agony, he said, Father, forgive them. Um, But also to follow his example. Those of us who receive his forgiveness must also forgive others. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Tonight, as we think about this this first word of Christ from the cross, this word of forgiveness, let's let the Spirit of God afresh renew in our own hearts a new amazement, a renewed amazement at his love for us and his forgiveness. But let him also challenge us that none of us leave this, this building tonight harboring any bitterness towards any other human being. Let's follow his example and say, Father... Forgive them. Luke 23, 42 and 43, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is the penitent thief. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. My wife and I have a mutual friend from college. His name is Sean. We stayed in contact with him somewhat after college. And he told us about his dad. His dad, after graduation, developed Alzheimer's disease. And he sunk into this midnight of the mind. And as he did so, the many ailments that Sean's father had disappeared. Suddenly, this older man was well, so to speak, But he didn't know anyone, including himself, and his condition lasted for five, ten years. I'm not sure exactly how long. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, his mind returned after that time, and he was lucid again. But then he became ill. And this clarity lasted only for a few weeks. But in that time, in that brief window of opportunity, though all his life up to that point had been lived as an unbeliever... He responded to his son's testimony of Christ, and before he died, he repented and trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior. 
This man, like the repentant thief on the cross, did not deserve God's grace. I don't either, and neither do you. That's why it's grace, all God's unmerited favor. But it goes against all sense of fairness to think that Sean's father could enter heaven and forever enjoy holy glory after living all but a week or most two of his life as an unbeliever. Fairness requires that heaven be reserved only for people like Sean, his son who went to Bible college to study the Bible so he could grow in his faith. And fairness requires that heaven be home for the Apostle John, who cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, after Jesus' death, and who endured persecution and exile, not to be home for a thief who repents an hour before his death. But the words of Jesus leave no doubt. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. With the power that upholds the universe, Jesus assures a dying man, an admitted criminal of eternal life. As it does today, his assurance of salvation rested on the unbreakable promise of God and was founded on the Savior's substitutionary work on the cross. Moments earlier, this thief was among the many who taunted the Savior as he hung on the cross. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And the reason we know the thief, this one thief was saying it is because Matthew adds, quote, In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Robbers, plural. How can this man be among the worshipers in heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain? In those agonizing moments of grace, while lifted up from the earth, something happened. A criminal repented of unbelief, rebellion, and insults. He told the other thief, quote, and, we and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve, unquote. Most people live in a foggy world of excusing their sin, convincing themselves that their pride is dignity, and their unwillingness to forgive is a little self-respect. It's amazing how the nearness of death can clear someone's head. He saw how spiritually bankrupt he was and that he had nothing to make himself acceptable to God. He confessed the purity of Christ when he said, But this man has, not, has done nothing wrong. And he believed in Jesus as the king. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Thinking of the day when Christ would return in power to earth one day. Perhaps he had heard Jesus teach about the kingdom some time before. Here is a picture of salvation by faith, not by works. There was no time for any sacrament, no time for any church ritual. There was no strength for good works. His arms were, and feet were nailed to a cross. And there's no mention of purgatory. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. Not after enough prayers have been said for you. Then you can leave purgatory. That day he joined Jesus in paradise. Now, there is also, there is also a warning to those who think that they will wait until their last breath. One alone was saved upon the cross that none might despair, and only one that none might presume. And yet the message of grace shines through. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
To say that God is generous is a complete understatement. The same grace that this thief needed, we need. There is no bottom to the ocean of God's grace. Amen. The phrase of the word that I have tonight is the word affection. We take from the text of John chapter 19, verses 24 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. You know, the word bewilderment comes to mind when I, when I think of what Mary had to view during that torturous time as Jesus hung on the cross. I go back to the, the time when my first son was married. As I was pacing in front of the church uh, prior to the wedding ceremony, I was in bewilderment. I couldn't believe that I was at this point in my life. Where did the years go? He was just sitting in my lap yesterday. He just got his license. He just graduated from high school. And all that was gone. I was bewildered. And then this girl from North Carolina had the audacity to take my son away from me. <laughs> but Mary, in all seriousness, is there before the cross, viewing her son. And she, too, finds herself in a bewildering circumstance. This is my son. He's the anointed one of Israel. And didn't Gabriel tell me before he was born that he will be great, that he will be called the Son of the Most High, and that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But now his hour had come, the hour which he talked about many times in his ministry. Her sacred son, who had often spoken, was now in this hour of pain and suffering. He said, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with in Luke 12:50. He was referring to his death. And surely Mary must have had some kind of inkling what lied ahead of her for her son and his ministry. In Luke chapter 2, we see Mary and Joseph going before uh, Simeon in the temple for the dedication of Jesus when he was born. And the text reveals that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he would see the Lord's Christ. And then, as he is dedicating this child, the baby Jesus, to the Lord, Simeon uttered these words to Mary. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. And he said, And this will be a sign that he is to be opposed. And then he says to Mary, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He's saying, Mary, this son of yours will bring many of Israel to me, to Christ, rather. And then he says, Many will reject him. But oh, to you, Mary, it'll be as if a sword pierces your soul. And this is the time that she is experiencing that very pain and agony now as she views her son on the cross. 
We even see the, the selflessness, though, of the son as he hangs there on the cross. And we see Jesus viewing the anguish of his mother as he himself is hanging there. And he says, woman, behold thy son. You might remember these very words that he uttered in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Mary comes running up to him. Uh, The disciples were there. Jesus was invited. And she says, they've run out of wine. And you know the story how it goes. Jesus says to her, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And in both texts, it's the same word, woman. And oftentimes people on the surface view that word and they think it's a a statement of superiority or that he's looking down on his mother or that he's distancing himself from her. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The exact same word means this. It means woman of any age, whether it be virgin, a woman married, or a widow. And in the same verses, and in both texts, it's in what they call the vocative case, which means that the word woman, the noun, is separated from the rest of the phrase in that sentence, and it stands alone. And the word literally means a word, it's a term of honor, and it's a term of respect, and it's a term of endearment. And so this word, woman, is not a disrespectful term. It's farther from the truth. It's a word of endearment and love and honor. And so the question then, as he's speaking to his mother there at Canaan of Galilee, in the Greek phraseology, it literally is, what to me and to thee, comma, woman. In literal terms, it's saying, he is saying, there's no obligation on me or you. But we see the love of Christ And the love of his mother. Because the love of Christ will supply the need for the wine. And she confides in him. And he responds. She knows who he is. And there was loving kindness in both of their hearts. Jesus in all his agony and pain looks down upon his mother. And with the same selfless love that caused him to leave the glory of heaven. He now looks upon his own mother as he's suffering. And he says, woman the one I respect, the one I love. Here's your son. And he says to John, here's your mother. He entrusts his mother, entrusts his mother to the one who loved him of all the disciples the most, John. It is the responsibility of the firstborn son to take care of the widowed mother. And Jesus is is passing that responsibility on to John. And the whole game changes as Mary now looks upon Jesus hanging on the cross. John, the one who loved him, will now take Mary into his home, and he assumes the sonship of Mary. But Mary will no longer peer into the eyes of Jesus, her son. She's now peering into the eyes of Jesus, her eternal Savior. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one ever has and no one ever will endure the excruciating pain that Jesus suffered on the cross. Before he was crucified, he was whipped mercilessly, causing his flesh to be 
basically strips of flesh dangling, just throbbing, bloody mass. And crucifixion was designed to cause maximum pain. But the physical suffering that Jesus endured on the cross is a mere drop in the bucket compared to what Jesus suffered that was far greater. Young lovebirds may think that they are deeply in love, that they can possibly love the one that they love any more than they do. And yet when you look at a couple who have been married for 40, 50, 60 years, you oftentimes will see a tender closeness there that was impossible to be there when they were newlyweds. As finite beings, we cannot begin to fathom the incredible closeness of that eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son, a relationship that had been there for all eternity. It was a perfect and sinless relationship. Not one time had there been a cross word spoken. Not one time was there an angry attitude. Never, not one time, had there been a disapproving frown. Jesus passionately loved his Father. He was consumed with him. And his Father was his utmost delight. But on that cross, the relationship with his Father was severed. The dreadful, agonizing, horrible reality was that his father had turned his back on him. In excruciating, infinite agony, Jesus cried out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly crushed. During his earthly ministry, the father, on occasion, had audibly spoken for the people to hear. On at least two occasions, he had said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. But now, hanging on the cross, in his greatest hour of need, the silence of the father was deafening. No wonder when physicians look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that they conclude that he died literally of a broken heart. You ask, well, but doesn't God promise to never forsake his children? Yes, he does. He certainly does. Hebrews 13.5, God promises, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. There might be times in our lives that you and I, we feel like God has forsaken us. We, we feel abandoned. We think that God has abandoned us. But you know what? We're dead wrong. He hasn't. But Jesus' situation on the cross was totally different. In contrast to every single human being that has walked on this earth, Jesus cried out in agony because 
he indeed was forsaken by his father. Why? Why? Why did he do it? Because God is absolutely holy. He cannot countenance sin. And he requires absolute holiness to come into his presence. And therefore man being sinful, were irreconcilably separated from God for all eternity. As Isaiah puts it, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But Jesus, in his incredible, undeserved love, took your sin and my sin on himself. And he offers us Instead, he offers us his holiness. As Isaiah says, the Lord caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. Or the text that was read or was quoted earlier this evening, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was forsaken by his Father on the cross so that by trusting in him, you and I will never, never be forsaken. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Dean has well presented to us the agony and the suffering, the abandonment of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Father. I want to remind all of us that it was temporary because scripture says he would be raised again for our justification. So the text says the necessary was accomplished. Christ drank deeply of the cup of suffering, the cup of the wrath of a just, righteous, and holy God, who by Christ's obedience now could justify sinners could reconcile the ungodly, could forgive the disobedience. And for the third time, the scripture comes, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, he drank deeply of that cup of suffering. Scripture tells us in the book of Matthew, six hours before the crucifixion began, that Christ refused the wine spiked with gall or myrrh because he knew that it would deaden not only the physical pain, but probably dull his mind. He willingly wanted to bear God's judgment our judgment, God's punishment, our punishment, 
And he would do that without a murmur or a moan. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says twice that he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb to be slaughtered, he would shed his blood, never murmuring. A contemporary song says, Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Here is a wounded lamb. And Eugene Peterson asks the question, Who could have thought that God's saving power would look like this? But Isaiah again says to us, The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him, and God's plan would prosper. Yes, Christ would suffer the chastisement and the punishment of a holy and righteous God. He would sense the rejection of the Father for a time. Now Christ agonizes before the world and his followers. He experiences intense dehydration. His lips are dry, his tongue swollen, his throat like sandpaper, his vocal cords weakened. And so he fulfills Psalm 22:15, where we read, My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. But his mind is clear. He's alert. His memory is unimpaired. He has instant recall. He remembers that Psalm 69, verse 21, prophesies that they gave me vinegar for my throat. And so, this time, he's going to cry, I am thirsty. I want to say something. I am weak. And he will accept a wine, a water, an unhealthy water, purified by a little wine. A soldier now shares with him some of his supply and with a water-drenched sponge lifted on a stick, Jesus Christ is able to receive a few drops of water which pass through his parched lips, freeing his tongue, his throat, and liberate, lubricating his vocal cords. The obedient, suffering servant and the sacrificing lamb fulfills yet another prophecy. I am thirsty. Thus he is enabled to inform his downcast followers and a mocking crowd two more important spiritual realities that Pastor Felty and Pastor Boone will share with us. Struggling, he remembers a scripture text of the Old Testament, I am thirsty, and he gains new strength to say the final two words that our men are going to share with us now.
Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. John 19.30 Three of the Gospels mention that Jesus cried out just before dying, but only John reports what Jesus said. Usually, a crucified person at the point of death did not have the strength to cry out, but would die with a moan. But Jesus gave a loud cry. His cry was not a cry of death, but a cry of victory. He had just won the greatest victory ever won. He cried with a loud voice, It is finished. Notice, he didn't say, I'm finished. Oh, it's all over. He said, It is finished. And in the Greek language, it was actually a single word that he spoke. It was the word tetelestai. Some consider tetelestai to be the most powerful single word of all of Jesus' ministry. It was the word that turned this apparent tragedy into a scene of victory that shook the earth, split the rocks, changed history, raised saints from the dead, tore away the temple curtain that had kept people out of the Holy of Holies for centuries. The word tetelestai comes from the verb telio, which means to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish. And the immediate question that comes to our mind is, what is it that is finished? Matthew Henry, in his famous commentary of over 300 years ago, lists several things that were finished or completed when Jesus cried out, it is finished. First of all, the malice of his enemies was finished. By nailing him to the cross, they had done their worst. Secondly, the sufferings ordained by God the Father were finished. Third, all the Old Testament types and prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. Four, the ceremonial law was abolished since it finds its completion and fulfillment in Christ. Five, his horrendous physical sufferings and pain were at an end. And finally, his life was now finished. He had only seconds to live. But above all those things, above all else, it meant that the work of redemption was now complete and the penalty of sin was paid in full. Several years earlier, John the Baptist had said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that taking away of sin was accomplished by the substitutionary death of our Lord. By his perfect obedience to God and his death on the cross, he had just opened the doors of heaven to men. He broke down the wall that separated men from God. The word to telestai was also used in the first and second centuries in the sense of paying a debt. It would, could be interpreted as paid in full. You see, when a person was put in prison back in those days, they would post a list of the crimes that or offenses that that person had committed. And after that prisoner had served their time and was released, they would take that list of offenses. They would write one word across it, to telestai. It's paid in full. It's all done. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the debt of sin in full. The work of salvation is now complete. That is what it is finished means. The debt was paid, the work was accomplished, the sacrifice was completed. The sacrificial death of Christ was sufficient to pay for the sins of every person who has ever lived, past, present, and future. This is what the theologians mean when they refer to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's not just a slogan. It is a profound spiritual truth. 
What Jesus accomplished in his death was so awesome, so total, so complete, it could never be repeated. Not even by Jesus himself. His work is finished. There's nothing more God could do to save the human race. There's no plan B. Plan A, the death of Christ, was good enough. And God now offers salvation free of charge. Jesus paid in full so you and I wouldn't have to pay anything. Colossians 2.14 puts it this way. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Since Jesus Christ paid the debt of sin in full, the only thing that you and I can do is either accept that or reject it. You see, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary, God takes the list of your sins and my sins and he writes across it, paid in full. It's paid and you and I are set free from the penalty of sin and given the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor was a famous missionary to China of previous century, was from a, came from a Christian home. But his mother prayed long and hard that he would come to salvation. And for a long time he resisted. And finally one day somebody gave him a little tract. And in that tract he read this expression, it is finished. This puzzled him. It troubled him a great deal. He didn't understand what does that mean. And so he went up into a hayloft and there with that tract he meditated on those words. It is finished. And finally out of that experience came his conviction of his own salvation. He describes it this way. Then there dawned upon me the joyous conviction that since the whole work was finished and the whole debt was paid upon the cross, there was nothing for me to do but to fall on my knees, accept the Savior, and praise Him forever. And that's what it means to be saved, to realize that Christ has paid it all, and to put my faith and trust in Him. Praise God, the work of redemption is finished, and your debt and my debt has been paid in full. Because lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. Following this word of victory comes the word of contentment. Beginning in verse 44. It says it was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed and the curtain uh, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Note the term of endearment. He says to, to, to God, Father, just as he called on him when he felt abandonment. He's, um, but now here he's using uh, this word of endearment, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jesus had great confidence in his, in his relationship with the Father, even in difficult circumstances. Certainly a lesson for us to learn, is it not? There, where when things don't look good, but we remember that the relationship is the same, even if the circumstances are different. Into your hands, he says. Jesus is not trying to control things. 
Jesus is not trying to change things. Jesus is content with the will of God and is submitting to the will of God. And then he says, I commit my spirit completely submitted to the will of God. Here we can admire and worship Christ for how he suffered. Peter, the apostle, wrote in 1 Peter a whole letter that really is about suffering and the place of suffering in the Christian's life. And not surprisingly, he talks much about what we learn from the suffering of Christ and how we take that then to ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We can admire Christ for everything we've seen of him tonight. Amen? All that we've seen, we look at him and we admire him and we worship him for how he did what he did. And of course, for what he did, how he did it, how he did it for us. But here, Peter is telling us that we're, we are not only admiring him, but we're, we're to follow his example. Later in the same epistle, he writes in chapter 4, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Suffering comes into our lives. People mistreat us. Things that are wrong happen to us. They are evil, just as evil was occurring on Christ. But none of us is sinless as Christ was. None of us is completely faultless but as Christ was. And yet we look at him and see him saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, a contentment with the will of God, a submission to the Father and the will of God. That verse I just read from Peter, chapter 4, verse 19, he says again, Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So you see, we follow his example. And in the circumstances in our life, we, we just entrust ourselves to our creator in doing what is right. We submit and then we do what is right, even if wrong is being do, done to us. We follow his example. Our Lord Jesus, I trust, um, as you've looked at at his seven words from the cross tonight, um, I trust that your vision of him has been refreshed and renewed and lifted up. And we worship him and we admire him. And then by his spirit, we follow him.